Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ed Greer. And I am producer Bill. And today, we're going to be talking about greatest non-Big 2 superheroes. And uh, we kicked around making it greatest non-Big 3 as an image, but I think... As we get past this first part of the conversation, you'll kind of see that, like, number one, there's a lot of discourse about all these characters. We can list them so you can understand we're being completist. But I also think a lot of the characters outside the big two, it's just hard for you to find heroism in these so-called superheroes. Less and less heroism is apparent as you go down from Image to all the other publishers that we're going to talk about and all the different versions and people's uh, independent versions of superheroes and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of interesting how the heroism can occasionally go down in these characters. Have you have you noticed that or am I off base? No, I think you're right there. And I mean, I think that this gets into a little of what we got into in our Superman analogs episode recently, where, you know, even beyond Superman, just the idea of a superhero is such a it, it's a concept that is like um, rooted in a very, very specific version of a story. Mm. And in a lot of ways, it's very limiting. And so being able to tell different types of stories, I think, almost demands that you break the character, mm -hmm. right? So that idea of like the upstanding concerned citizen who lives by an unimpeachable moral code, even if sometimes they're hurting people or going against the system, you know, in the case of your Batman style characters, or they're your paragons of progress and goodness in the case of your Superman style characters. Like there's only so much wiggle room in your storytelling there. And so, especially when you're getting into publishers and writers that don't have giant IP farms that are built on that idea, you almost necessarily have to start breaking the toys in order to make it interesting. I think that's something to keep in mind. All of the people on the greatest pod have their their eccentricities and their 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 different skill sets they bring to each broadcast. I think I bring a relentless need to categorize and classify things. I think, uh, and I think Bill brings uh, sometimes exhaustive lists. I, I, <laughs> I think you're you're a real good list guy. Uh, so. Um, Let's kind of uh, look at some of the people on a list that you've made of people who are not in the big two that are superheroes. And maybe let's get some of the ones that everybody wants us to talk about out of the way quickly. I could throw one on the Barbie. His name is Spawn. He's mm -hmm. not very heroic. I think that's that's number one. And then he's yep. defending the people in the alley. Fine. But like, like he's he's to me a pretty prime example and in direct um, conflict with somebody like Savage Dragon who chose to be like a cop. Yep. Even a cop who gets in fist fights all day and fights evil villains, he still chose to kind of join the system and be part of this protect the status quo type of thing. Uh, whereas Spawn is just like, man, I got these powers and I'm I'm chained to the devil and I'm, my power meat is running out and I gotta be judicious in how I use my powers to get my revenge and these motherfuckers killing me. And It's much more complicated than pulls on masks, fights muggers at night. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at any of those original image characters, whether it's Spawn, Savage Dragon, Shadowhawk, you know, <laughs> the Wildcats, Cyberforce, like, in a lot of ways, they're one of two things. They're either just the most surface level extension of their creator's best hits. 
So in the case of Wildcats or Cyberforce, like those are really just X-Men, X-Force analogs, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's just the car- the creator trying to capture lightning in a bottle twice. Or in the case of Spawn Savage Dragon, it is creators going back to characters that they created when they were kids and the entire concept of the superhero was still like new and bright in their eyes. And so, Mm. you know, I've talked before on this podcast and others about how I've got a huge soft spot for what Eric Larson has done with Savage Dragon. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's been done in that book, but in a lot of ways it's operating on the exact same paradigm that like Lee and Kirby wrote the first hundred issues of, of fantastic four. You know, Mm. a lot of what he's doing is just trying to go back to the comics that made him love comics. Um, and I think spawns a different case, but you know, spawn is really emblematic of an entire wave of characters and concepts that came about in like the late eighties, early nineties with the emo grunge, you know, goth, um, Renaissance across all of the arts, right? It was sort of the, uh, mm-hmm. it was sort of the, the dark side of gen X, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> it definitely was a part of that. Well, the, the, the dark side of gen X, the, uh, you said the um, extension of the creator's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's, well, a lot of those guys and a lot of people who create superhero comics that aren't big too, they try to extend the world into all the places where regular superheroes don't trod. You For know what sure. I mean? Like you hardly ever see them in alleys unless they're whooping people's ass. Like Spawn like lived in an alley. Like I think I think Todd really liked that aspect of it. Like he lives like that, like he lives his day-to-day life like the bystanders to crime and punishment do in the big two comics. But you can also see it's it's a total, I don't want to say ripoff, but it's a total extension of like what Alan Moore did with Swamp Thing. Like mm-hmm. I'm gonna take this elemental creature and rather than be in a city on rooftops whatever like the sense of place became an extension of the character and so the fact that you're in these fetid swamps and these ramshackle huts on stilts over the stagnant water and this and that Mm -hmm. is so integral to those stories and i think like the refuse and the rats and the worms and the bats and the shadows and the alleys Mm -hmm is the exact same thing in spawn. Yeah. And him looking like a corpse kind of, you know, just this whole like re- refuse, like garbage. Like this is the garbage of the world getting their shot to kick some ass or whatever, man. I don't even think he was thinking of it on that level, baby. I don't <laughs> think so either. <laughs> but see, that's, like, that, well, I'm going to buy some baseball for Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that's the thing. Look, I, I'm also on the record as loving spawn, but I think, in a lot of ways, I wanted to move this conversation beyond image for mm. two reasons. Number one, like I said, I think a lot of the image characters are just a product of those guys trying to figure out how to bank on what people were already looking for from them. So mm. even with Spawn, right? Todd McFarlane has this super weird 
overly detailed, gritty, textured artwork, and it doesn't get grittier and more textured than in a dirty back alley slum. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and uh, just you know, I was thinking about as we move past because uh, I'm in full agreement. We there's a lot of characters that uh, have been examined to death, even though there's no there there. Like, I'm, mm. why would we spend an hour on fucking Cyber Force? That would be insane. <laughs> that would be like literally insane. Like, uh, I don't, I don't even, I don't even know if uh, kayfabe has done that. You know what I mean? I think they always try to intersperse something else and like, oh, let's oh, yeah. talk a little bit about Mark Silvestri, uh, Mark Silvestri drawing this or drawing that because like just regular straight up sit down talk about Cyberforce. It's like a ten minute conversation if you're not insane. Well, <laughs> so, and, that, and that's kind of my number two, and the reason why I wanted to move past that is because those characters almost succeeded despite themselves. Like mm-hmm. those characters succeeded on the merits of their creators, not on their merits as right. a creation. And that can and th- see the distinction. No, no, exactly. And that's kind of what we're trying to celebrate a little bit more with these characters is not so much. You made your bones of the big two and then you go somewhere else and get a shot to, to, to do the big two stuff, but genericized a little mm-hmm. bit. That's that's not what we're trying to celebrate here. We're trying to celebrate like this. Okay, I have a unique vision for a superhero. The big two probably wouldn't fuck with it, but maybe I'm a self-publisher, so I want to do it myself because it's my project. This is my voice doing this so-called superhero trope. And I'm just going to qualify things as you have a fucking costume. You have serialized adventures. I don't want us to get too hung up on overall heroism as we go down this thing because I'm telling you, some of these motherfuckers that just make up their characters – they kind of make up characters that can do more than, you know, put the flag back on top of the White House, take the cat out of the tree. They kind of want to do more stuff. Absolutely. And and I think my interest and my thesis here is kind of when your road into comics is something different than I'm going to make my bones being a badass for the big two on characters that people already love and then try to give them my take on that. When you do something different than that road, I think mm. you end up with something infinitely more interesting on the page. Yeah. And so that's a little bit of what I want to, uh, what I want us to get into here. Okay. And All I right. think, so, yeah, I think we would be remiss to not pay homage to the granddaddy of them all, which is the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, if you know anything about the history of superheroes, like, It's never been just Marvel and DC, you know, from the early days of superheroes, DC was took the ball and ran with it with Superman. But, you know, in the thirties and forties, there's dozens of sort of fly by night publishers just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And then even when you get into the sixties and Marvel sort of brings superheroes back into prominence, the seventies are replete with, you know, not fly by night publishers, but publishers trying to get in on some of that action. Um, everything from Comico to Gold Key to Charlton, you know, in the case of the Charlton characters and a couple other companies, they're eventually bought out by DC Comics mm-hmm. or Marvel Comics. And it's not until the 80s with the the independent boom, as it's often called, that you really see people, you know, starting to break into comics with auteur takes on original superheroes. Mm-hmm. And I think Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird really kicked those doors down with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles originally published. I mean, they published self-published one black and white issue of this comic book. And off the back of that got toy deals, cartoon deals, 
merchandising and went on to create a $60 million empire. Um, the story of the rise and fall of which, by the way, is fascinating and way beyond the scope of this more of an overview podcast that we're doing. But uh, one of the great, I mean, not just stories in comics, but one of the great stories in entertainment, sort of the meteoric rise and complicated fall of Eastman and Laird in the TMNT. Yeah, I mean, and also I think that their um, contribution in, in that um, a lot of great things have started as parody. I think this is the, I think this and what's that, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey are probably the two most <laughs> successful parodies of all yeah, time. That's a great You know what call. I mean? That's a great Parodies call. are, yeah, parodies are homages. I think, yeah, they're, they're, it's like when the homage becomes gr- almost greater than the thing that you're homaging. Because uh, I, I think there were there have been many years on this earth where TMNT were more popular than Daredevil. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You know, um, probably almost all years that the, since the, in their existence, really. <laughs> um, well, it's really interesting because, again, if you don't know, um, TMNT started as sort of a weird spoof of Daredevil in that the canister that blinded Matt Murdock and gave him superpowers rolls into a sewer and irradiates the turtles. And then they go on to fight a ninja clan called the foot. Whereas daredevil is fighting a ninja clan called the hand. And you know, a lot of the same tropes of lurking on the water towers of hell's kitchen and blah, blah, blah employed in the TMNT. However, it deigned to be so much more than just a spoof. Like they took the premise of, you know, what if that mutagenic substance rolled into the sewer after it, after it fell off the truck uh, and blinded young Matt Murdock? That was their kind of funny premise. But from that, they built this entire bonkers, lived-in, complex world of characters and concepts going all the way to Dimension X and Krang and the, and the uh, Mousers and all this weird shit that eventually could really stand on not even eventually. I mean, from the beginning could stand on its own as its own little superhero world. And that's kind of, it's interesting. No. And Kirby. Um, I was just going to say, and Kirby stuff, like, uh, things that they liked that Kirby did from going into different, uh, like you said, the dimension X as in the negative zone and all mm. the mutagenic effects of being in another world. You as this thing from another world in another world, having unique advantages or disadvantages, um, they just really wanted to do, it's almost like they started doing a daredevil parody and then they used their creation to do, uh, takes on every single comic book archetype from their youth, from Kirby stuff to Neil Adams stuff later to different things. They wanted to homage or, or, or remix all throughout the comic book genre. So it's not, if, if it stayed a daredevil, all I'm saying is if it stayed a daredevil clone, it wouldn't have got as big as it gotten as it has, has gotten. It's interesting to to note, too, that, I mean, that formula is really what Eric Larson has done with Savage Dragon. Mm. And obviously to much less breakout success than Eastman and Laird achieved. But that idea of like, let's start with a very sort of grounded, simple, clever premise, and then let's bake into it every wild idea we could possibly Mm -hmm. come up with from our youth. I don't know. It it creates a very rich world, even if it's not always like the most intellectually self-consistent or even like hmm. the most um, engaging or gratifying. You know, I, in a lot of ways, I think the turtles much more limited than they are, you know, aside from the 
300 issues of Savage Dragon are in a lot of ways a more satisfying world. Like, and, and I don't even know what that is, right? Like, I'd be interesting to hear mm. interested to hear your take on this, but like their weird remix of like David Cronenberg's The Fly with Baxter Stockman, Jack Kirby tropes with the negative zone. And then I guess just more Cronenbergian weirdness with like Krang being the disembodied brain that rides around in the belly of a giant robot. Like mm-hmm. mixing that with weird street level mutagenic monsters, there's just such a weird magic to it. And it 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 hits different than the Savage Dragon world that while still interesting, just feels like, oh, we're just throwing random bullshit against the wall to see what sticks just because there's so much in it. It's almost the limitation or the restraint that works for it. Mm. I don't know. What's, what's your well, take on that? Uh, my take is that both of them are throw a bunch of shit at the wall bullshit. And <laughs> I think we, 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 the, the turtles are so much more successful that we see it in a greater light than that. But I think that's the beauty of having your own fucking comic book. It's like you don't have this weird corporate culture to kowtow to, which I think fucked up Savage Dragon. If mm. Savage Dragon was the most interesting – I've said this right before. I'll say it again. There are characters that are the most interesting thing in their world. But when you put them right next to goddamn Spider-Man or Superman or something, the whole shit falls apart because the world doesn't need that guy if it's got these other guys. I'm sorry. So mm. like the – so like. The Savage Dragon is a perfect example. In a world, in a world where Youngblood and goddamn Cyberforce and Stormwatch and eventually the Authority and all these people exist, Savage Dragon is a suck ass bitch. Honestly, <laughs> there's, there's nothing cool about him. He's a he's a low level, super strong, invulnerable healer guy. There's six of them on Cyberforce. One of them's got four arms or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> yeah. that that, it, that shit sucks. But if you were in a world where you couldn't remember who you were, nobody has ever seen anything like you in your life, after that Ted level of celebrity sort of wears off and they realize they can't coop you up in a military lab, you can break out anytime you want, you got to get a job. What job you get? Cop. Mm -hmm. And you're a cop. And then your strength invites all of these overlords of the city to become their own super heroic uh, things to deal with you. And it's like you're that kind of Batman problem personified. And to the fact that they can't get them fucking selves together to do a goddamn Savage Dragon movie, you know, a Savage Dragon movie, which wouldn't have to slave itself to any image continuity. They could do whatever they want. Yeah. So he could show up. He could show up, get his job as a cop. They could show up. They could start it at, with him as a cop, do flashbacks to how he got to this level. And the bottom line is when they reveal that he's supposed to be some like uh, uh, conqueror from an alien race. And he's like, oh, shit, I forgot I was supposed to conquer you or whatever that storyline was. You could have that be like the last scene in the last part of the movie after he has a great cop adventure, some gritty cop adventure. And then you realize he's an alien or something. And they got to do with that next movie or something. I don't know. There's just a billion directions you could go with that. I could see the guy in the makeup. I can see the little CGI. I can see it. No, 100 percent. We are living in an era where Savage Dragon almost demands to be a movie or a TV show because Again, outside of everything you just said, which I'm in complete agreement with, it's also a story of police escalation and police militarization. Mm -hmm. And like we're living in a moment now where even though the comic has strayed very far from that core concept, if you bring it back for a TV series, Mm -hmm. like there's almost no superhero character better equipped to comment on some of those like very real issues in society. Dude, propaganda – Copaganda. 
we talk about extravaganza of money. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no matter how you take it, like this could be like, what if Blue Bloods was secretly a left wing show, but all the right wingers loved it? That could be you could have you could have that with Savage Dragon. Yeah, man. No, I'm I'm with that. But anyway, I, I hear what you're saying about the idea of like the minute you start to include other people's crazy bullshit alongside your crazy bullshit, your crazy mm-hmm. bullshit is way less appealing. Like mm-hmm. that, that's something we've talked about a lot when we talk about Marvel and DC. And I do think that extends to any of these characters. And yeah, the fact that TMNT just lives in their own world and they, you know, the creators, even now that it's become more of a corporatized thing, um, and I think a lot of the creativity has sort of gone with it because now they're essentially trying to protect that brand. Although I might eat my words because the last Ronin, which is, you know, a, a Raphael yeah. post-apocalyptic Dark Knight Returns type story that they just published recently um, is supposedly amazing. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, when you are just experimenting wildly and like, free to put whatever the hell you want on the page that's really the secret sauce of ending up with it could be a complete bloated mess but in the case of something like tmnt it's not it's super satisfying and interesting well and also Um, those characters share something with i I think as we start to talk about these other characters you're going to see what i'm talking about in regards to specific costuming mm. to be something that's super heroic or seen as such you have to have very specific costuming or rather consistent to your world costuming you have to we have to recognize these people by silhouette you know all those design rules well let's yeah i mean let's move on then to a character that really sort of sits where tmnt meets savage dragon in a lot of ways but i think is an even better encapsulation of the idea of like when your world is self-contained and you can do whatever the hell you want with it it becomes infinitely more interesting and that's hellboy Mm. And, you know, to your point about the aesthetics, one of the great examples of character design, you know, iconic mm-hmm. silhouette, immediate identifiability, and also one of pro- arguably maybe the best in all of comics examples of creating a world from scratch and making it infinitely compelling based on its, you know, very specific idiosyncrasies. And I think uh, to to that end, because uh, I, I definitely wanted to explore this one more with you, um, just the perfect extension of what you did at the big two and then you do it on your own. Like, I wish Mike Mignola had done like a fucking workshop with the guys at Image and sat down with them being like, okay – because like I, I know their timelines are different. Like he wasn't quite as he was he was never ever as big as them ever. Mm. But as an artist and as a designer of characters and as a person who they trusted to do shit like Cosmic Odyssey with all those characters and stuff, and let him kind of show the world through his lens, he established his voice. But when he took his voice away from the big two, he didn't just. He didn't do a he he did a Batman story that was sort of a ghost story that he stated is basically the first Hellboy story, and from that point, that was the last time it was like uh, something that would be comparable to the big two. Every other aspect of his, and maybe maybe some of the original 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 comics that he was writing with John Byrne, where they had like a Captain Liberty type figure or the Torch, his name was I think yeah, he was yeah, like yeah. the Captain America of that world, and they were kind of doing a little hee bullshit. But after they like threw that shit into the sun, 
that it really starts to sing with this new voice. He had never done anything like it for the big two, but his aesthetics for things like the Dracula comic book. Mm. And, you know, when he got to do different covers of the Hulk, even his Hulk covers and his Dracula work. And that one issue of Batman had a fucking gangbang and Hellboy came out. And I love that because it's different than Mark Silvestri drawing beautiful ladies in Cyberforce. I love Mark Silvestri. I love him to death. Same. Yeah. But it's different. It's a different level of artistry. No, I agree. I mean, I I agree with what you're saying as well about, you know, Mike Mignola taking the stuff that he experimented on with the big two and graduating it. But I have always felt like in a lot of ways, his style when he moved to Hellboy was such a level up from anything he ever did with the big two. Like mm-hmm. you see bits and pieces of it in some of those comics that you mentioned, but there's still he's operating in a, in his reasonable facsimile of a Marvel or DC house style. And just the minimalist cubist design focused flat fields of color approach that he has almost from the original tome of Hellboy, almost from seed of destruction. The first Hellboy Mm -hmm. story is just wild. Both how, distilled and specific that artistic approach is um, for somebody that was still, you know, kind of finding their feet in the industry. Yeah. I I think he also remembered uh, in a key way. I mean, this is why being old rocks because I, (laughs) I think he remembered how good his shit used to look flat colored and how fucked up it could look when it was like, extra bullshit coloring you know what i mean like people doing extra proceeds more paint a painterly approach on top of mignola looks dumb because this shit is so 2d yeah. when you try to round things out with any painterly approach or any complex colors when the forms are 2d and you put 3d lighting on it it looks ugly now me personally i love flat color but oh, i'm I love old it too you know what i'm saying so but, I, you know but i mean i i think so much of it is down both to his line work and how he composes you know, mm. again, it, it really started in Seed of Destruction, but I think it just gets more and more refined as he goes. Like, you look at any any piece of Mike Mignola art, it's almost graphic design. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's designed to just have flat shapes of color juxtaposed next to each other with these fields of black in between that he lays down. Like, he's not asking the colorist to do any rendering because yes. yeah. he's sort of taken the chiaroscuro that, that somebody like Neil Adams would render with thousands of lines and feathering and hash marks to really get this dynamic shadow that defines the three-dimensionality of a figure. Like Mike Mignola has, has effectively figured out how to do that without any rendering or hatch marks or feathering. Like he just flattens it out completely. And mm. the way that he puts black next to white is just so sophisticated. He creates three-dimensional worlds that way. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really just down to the fact that he's essentially designing two-dimensional ultra-minimalist images. So if you're going to do anything with color that bucks against that, it's going to look out of place. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're going to, and, and I love how you talked about the two dimensionality of it. If you keep it 2D, then it doesn't matter that he doesn't really fuck with perspective like that. Oh, and I'm totally. not saying he could not whip out the fucking Mariner's tool and do perfect three point perspective if he wanted to. But when he's left to his druthers, he makes these things that are almost like movie posters. They're kind of stacked mm-hmm. on each other, like these different forms stacked or juxtaposed, like you said, or, you know, that, that's, that's the, he's the fucking man. I think we, we may have blown him enough, but <laughs> I, 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 uh, I can't stop because he's, he is awesome. And the thing is, I will make an admission. I think Hellboy comics can be very good. I do not like all of them. I do not like this sort of, uh, just sort of mystic Baba Yaga E like shit don't have to make no sense. I shoot the frog. He turns into a skeleton. And that's not really my jam, <laughs> but they're so beautiful to look at. Yes. Well, I was going to say, I mean, Hellboy deals in, the type of magic that you and I are very much on the record is like, we don't really, <laughs> we don't really fuck with. Right. Like Hellboy is magic with a capital M, but it's such, again, this goes back to now that we're talking story, like the way he put that universe together. Yes. It's like, what if you take pulp superheroes, weird magic and witchcraft and occult mysticism and HP Lovecraft style, old gods and then mix it with like mutants and sea monsters and kind of ghosts and like every supernatural tale from every culture in the world being real. And now you have the world of Hellboy. <laughs> right. No. And th- that is beautifully, beautifully stated. And he's even said himself, uh, he just kind of wanted to tell old kind of like public domain Eastern European myths mm. as like these adventure stories just plain and simple i like these weird stories and i think it's his and uh myth is an important word to go in there because if it was just magic neither you or i would fuck with it no matter how good he is but it's myth too and what we're as we've always as we uh i've come to say a lot on this podcast after our mythic storytelling episode uh mythic storytelling is hard because it's hard to establish just enough rules to make the framework of it but not over explain it into now it's science and shit and the beauty about hellboy is it, there are several scientific bureaus in that world, the BPRD and maybe other fac- other factions. They're all trying to understand this thing scientifically that can't be. Mm. And one of their main guys is proof that it can't be scienced out. <laughs> their main fucking guy is a demon, yeah. <laughs> the Antichrist, that has rejected that because he likes ham sandwiches and beer. Which is another you know beautiful thing about Lo- yeah Hellboy. love that I mean he's such he's such a blue collar schlub which is you know yeah another I mean Ed I know you like to do this if we want to do a little bit of our exercise of like lessons to take away from the stuff that we're looking at I think a couple things that are consistent from TMNT through Hellboy is like as TMNT is really just a very facile hey let's do a version of Daredevil. In a lot of ways, Hellboy is a very facile version of like, hey, let's do an Indiana Jones riff. Mm. But what you then do is pile all this world building, weird aesthetics, to your point, like instantly Mm -hmm. identifiable looks and like sort of um, long tail of history of your own specific world's history on top of that very facile what if. And now you got the beginnings of a, of quite a stew there. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Iconography and and mythology they get together to make a good superhero baby. 
Well, so on that point, uh, in terms of remixing, which is a word that has come up a bunch already and like we'll continue to hear it, I want to talk about one of your favorites, and that mm-hmm. is Grendel. Mm, yes. I am I am uh I'm aware of Grendel. I, I I know the broad strokes. I don't know that I've really read, I don't know that I've ever read a Grendel comic. Um so I'm gonna need you to just kind of give me give me the sales pitch on Grendel. All right. Well, I think the main sales pitch on Grendel is that it seems to be a recurring concept through history mm. that may or may not have been born with a guy named Hunter Rose. And Hunter Rose was like um a, he was like a super genius who wrote like novels when he was eight and shit like that. And he became like a world-class fencer and all this weird shit. And then that one, he was going to, he was at the penultimate match or rather the ultimate match of fencing. And he just sort of gave up because he realized he could win easily. Like there was no challenge in that world left. And once he stopped fencing and he, he uh, kind of became reclusive from his writing, or maybe he sold a big book and got rich and went back to the city he had a weird torrid love affair with this lady that scarred him. All this weird bullshit happened. But the bottom line is, at some point, Hunter Rose decided that he was just going to, as a game, take over the criminal underworld of his world. Just, mm. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the guy. And he did it. He was able to, like, through being his own henchman, his own best henchman and assassin, he was able to consolidate power in the city as his own, like, he was a superhero gang lord mm. basically or mm. super villain gang lord however you want to say it but like he also like took care of a young a young girl who will become like i think a grendel later and all this different weird shit and there's so many different the reason why you may not have read a grendel comic is there's so many different series because again the grendel is a comp is it is a concept after grendel is murdered or rather yeah after grendel dies in glorious battle with his arch nemesis argent the wolf his hmm. skull is preserved and becomes a sacred object throughout time up to 3000 years in the future. There are armies that wear the Grendel, the Grendel crest. There, there are armies that both wear Grendelish shit that fight each other because way in the future it becomes a like Judeo-Christian ideology to be down with Grendel. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, that's like, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's the fucking ill shit about Grendel. Grendel was once Christine Spar who was like uh, um, uh, inspired by Grendel to do her own adventures. And she uh, got the weird Grendel trident. He has like a two bladed weapon. That's like symbolic of his power or whatever. And she was stabbing fools and doing shit. And she ended up getting killed. And you know what I mean? There's just so many different um, iterations of Grendel as a concept. Mm -hmm. And then Matt Wagner can always dovetail back to telling original Hunter Rose stories anytime he wants to or putting out giant compendiums with different artists of him just writing sort of sketchy stories about what Hunter Rose may or may not have done during his crime reign. And then again, like I said, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because here we see a major through line from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to Hellboy to Grendel is that idea of like creating a long history, like a Mm. ton of sort of I guess in Hellboy's case, buried history in the past. And in Grendel's case, it sounds like future history that sort of mm-hmm. grows from your initial seed of the character. Man, do you create, do you give yourself storytelling opportunities and you end up creating a concept in a series that feels so much bigger than just, you know, 
Jim Lee's Spartan being a uh, <laughs> an android who fights good. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, my name is fucking Spartan. Uh, oh, grifter. Man, <laughs> grifter. Jesus Christ. Okay, we're not, it's not just about to bash those, those image guys, but it's like, yeah, when you compare that stuff to TMNT or fucking – any of these things we're talking about, it's like I think the 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 difference should be glaring. So again, with Grendel, I think a lot of people, when they're not into it, can say there's not a lot of there there because the way that they draw um, Hunter Rose as a character is very like like I said that breakdown I gave you. Like he was a fencer, he wrote novels. Like what the fuck is going on with this guy? But it was just about like this unrepentant genius. Like he had so much genius, the world was so easy. And then when he gets into crime, that's easy too. And it's like, this sucks, man. And he finally got uh, this this arch enemy named Argent the Wolf, who was like literally like just a fucking werewolf that was just a guy. Yeah, that was like a werewolf. And the werewolf and Grendel both had a relationship, I think, with Grendel's like daughter. Like they were like she saw Argent as like you maybe you could see the goodness in Argent and and you know and Grendel's like fuck that guy. Like she and, and Argent is like, man, you need to get away. You can't live with this evil criminal monster. And he's like, but that's my dad. Like, man, fuck that guy. <laughs> and so both of them had this weird fight, you know, and it just shit like that. And uh, Grendel being Grendel really inspired me to like uh, in one of my screenplays, uh, there's sort of a, an underground criminal character that I kind of doing like a Grendel riff on. Like if you could take over gangs as an idea, like almost like Batman, if Batman decided I'm going to use this myth making and this, you can't, I'm, I'm an, I'm this urban legend and I'm going to use all this. I'm like Candyman or whatever type shit and mm-hmm. make a gang out of it. That'd be some ill shit to see in a movie. You know what I mean? And, and a Grindle yeah. series is coming to Netflix. So uh, oh, I'm going to be mightily rooting for it. I follow Matt Wagner. Matt Wagner's criminally unfollowed on, uh, underfollowed on Twitter. He's got like 5,000 followers or something, maybe 50, but it seems like it should be billions. So Matt go Wag- follow Matt Wagner on Twitter. Matt Wagner is a really interesting creator. And it makes me think um, the director, the film director, Nicholas Winding Refn, who's one of my favorites, did Drive, did Only God Forgives, mm-hmm. Neon Demon. I heard an interview one time with him where he described himself as a fetish filmmaker. Mm. And that doesn't mean that he makes films starring people <laughs> in gimp costumes. It means that like he, the only thing he's interested in when he makes a film is making it interesting to him. Right? Mm. Like He will not pursue something unless he himself is totally fascinated by it. And Mm -hmm. I feel that both Matt Wagner as a creator and Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy are very much that guy, right? Like Mm -hmm. these, these sagas that they create in their comics are very much just about like, I have these wild bracing ideas and I just need an outlet for me to work out all my interests. And that becomes the comic. Dude. Oh, and also I'd just like to uh, mention uh, the biggest variant Grendel that I like the best is called Grendel Prime. Mm-hmm. And he is, he's from this weird, crazy, he's he's from that weird, crazy fucked up future where like the major daimos or whatever the fuck daimyos that run the world. Cause yeah, we're, we're a weird mixed up culture in the future. We're like, African Chinese Brazilians in the future, you know what I mean? <laughs> just like they're and they're just doing all this stuff. So it's so it's like uh, Grendel Prime. I don't quite remember his whole jazz, but I know he's a cyborg, 
and he has like basically a lightsaber <laughs> and he's just like driving around like this ill bike and he's like a perfect like uh, uh, it's almost like a the, a guy from um a lot of manga have like a, a uh fucking guy on a bike that kind of is his bike almost you know what i mean like he's like kind of bonded to it type of thing and when he gets off his bike that's your ass mm-hmm. you know what i mean and, and, and he's like uh bottom line batman has fought both versions of grendel in the matt wagner written and drawn crossovers that grendel has had with with batman and like hunter rose grendel fighting batman being like physically weaker than batman but being faster and him and wagner kind of doing that kayfabe you gotta do to make both of them look good in the in the aggregate of the fight <laughs> even though he does let i think batman break grendel's arm because like grendel's not gonna fit grendel like fences he'll like slice you and dice you from all over the place but when you get in close quarters like batman's like hey, come here you little bitch i'll fuck your ass up you know what i mean <laughs> so but then to see grendel prime come back i think grendel prime came back to get hunter rose's skull from a gotham city museum or some shit like that maybe i'm making that up something like that happened and grendel prime came back and batman was there and batman just tried to fucking fuck with him but it was he said it was like fighting like a toyota mm. like grendel prime is like a toyota so and he but this the the two stripes down the eyes and sort of spider-man mask with two stripes going straight up and down grendel iconography seeing that on like spaceships in the future all the way to like leotards from the second grendel or the third grendel all the way to the perfect grendel suit that was kind of a feat and kind of sissified that grendel actually wears the iconography surviving for thousands of years just of story. just It's just badass shit. Check out Grendel. You're not going to like all of it, but there's so much of it, you're going to like some of it. <laughs> and, I'll, <laughs> and I'll let anybody that's cool borrow my Grendel, Grendel omnibus, omnibus. I would say if you invest in the Grendel Omnibus and look at the character, how he develops, I think you'll, you'll at least appreciate what's being done there. That's all I got to say. Sounds good to me. Well, I want to move on um, to a character that might just be nostalgia bait for me. But do you remember, and this is the significant part, Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti's Ash? I do remember Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti's Ash. I do. <laughs> He's a fireman superhero. So 100 first of all, let's just get this out of the way up front. Like, this is pandering on an ultra level, right? Like, <laughs> this is literally just these guys being like, yo, we're two New York guys. Like, how do we really give it up for the guys from the old neighborhood? We're going to take us. We're going to take a fireman and make him a superhero. Like, it's just that. <laughs> that said, I do think that it's a significant character. Number one, because Literally on the strength of this character is what Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti went on to take over the Marvel Knights imprint Mm. at Marvel, which Mm -hmm. directly led to Joe Quesada becoming editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, which directly preceded the creation of Marvel Studios and the creation of the MCU. And so literally Marvel Mm -hmm. dominance of entertainment can be traced back to Ash, published by Event Comics. <laughs> I was about to say it's a, it's a fucking. Uh, hey, we make it. It's an event. Uh, <laughs> like I, I, I loved. I, I, I confess, I only read like maybe the first two issues, Fair. and maybe I read one and three because I couldn't get to. You know, yes. you know how they do that shit. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I re- and I loved. I gotta say, I kind of loved his design. Didn't make any sense, but I loved it. 
it was fucking phenomenal. Because yeah. oh, the 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 the, the Reed Richard streaks that were made out of flame or something like one hundred and ill. And he he also had uh, he had the giant ass hand gauntlets, like yes. not, like the sci fi hand gauntlets that could like spew fire whips or whatever out of the out yes. of the, the tops of the hands. I mean, this is another example I think similar to Mignola of. Joe Quesada taking, you know, his very unique, very dynamic style that he was working in in the big mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. and then just designing something that like kicked it to a totally different level when yeah. he did his own thing. Because yep. this like the story of the book is almost it almost doesn't matter. Like, but just in <laughs> case you're wondering, essentially a post-apocalyptic future. I don't know how or why, but like this, um, this healing pod that they had in a post-apocalyptic future was sent back in time manifests Mm -hmm. in a burning building in our present day. And a fireman who's trapped in there and is otherwise going to die manages to crawl in and it essentially turns him into a superhero. Yep. Yep. And, and with the ability to like, uh, do flame based shit as energy projections, I guess. Uh, and from like inside his own body and shit, like he, he was able to like make flame. He wasn't able to just like work with flame that's around like a pyrokinetic or something like that. It seemed like he was able to make flame. Yeah. I think there was, it was, um, similar, you know, it, sometime in the early to mid nineties there, everybody was working on variations of like symbiote costumes and whatnot. So I think, you know, it's like, this was like nanotechnology that lived inside of him and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I just think it's worth mentioning number one, because the design is kick-ass number two, because this was sort of the ascent of, of Quesada and Palmiati, but also because, and it doesn't get enough credit for this, Event Comics was just the two of those guys self-publishing their own work. And that was an interesting gamble at the time because Image had launched and kind of collapsed. I I think Ash launches in like 95 or 96, which is right around the time when all the original Image founders are having a huge falling out with each other. You know, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee are going back to Marvel. You know, there's talk of of Jim Lee selling Wildstorm either to Marvel or later on as it actually happened to DC. You know, and so these guys, rather than go to Image, who knows if they even would have taken them at the time, rather than go to another publisher like Dark Horse, they're like, why don't we just put it out ourselves? And it wasn't a huge success, but again, it made a big enough splash to number one, propel those guys into future success. But number two, um, really sell the viability of like, look, you don't need to have a big publishing machine behind you, which even the image guys did. Like they all got together Mm -hmm. and they were being, you know, they were being printed and distributed um, by the same people that were printing and distributing some of Marvel's books. Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti did it all themselves out of their own house from the from all accounts and like achieved some success with it. And I think that's a really interesting time that directly presages, you know, Quesada went and became the head honcho at Marvel. Jimmy Palmiotti now writes and kickstarts graphic novels 
and is doing very, very well for himself. Like that guy mm. launches a new graphic novel with some great artistic collaborator, like every couple months. And he mm-hmm. is on a churn and burn schedule and he is by doing very, very well self-publishing, just doing it all himself. And that starts with Ash. Dude, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And and and, uh, and you were right to point out that it wasn't like just some super smart move. They weren't dealing with our present media scape. They exactly. weren't dealing with our present ability to do that shit. But Palmiati especially was already thinking like that. And so I think Asada, I maybe thought of it as uh entrepreneurial thing but also i think he thought of it as like a giant audition like this is what i would do if i had no oversight and people kind of liked some of what was going on there and and him and palmiati were like workhorses that could do a lot and had a lot of ideas that even they couldn't do so like why not put them in charge of a bunch of other you know what i mean like it was like a beautiful plan but it wasn't you're right to celebrate how how not smart it was at that time it would be categorically kind of dumb to go into self-publishing right at that exact period where even the big dogs of it were having fallouts and going back. That was perfectly stated. I, I was, I mean, it was literally in the middle of, of the comic book industry collapse. So yeah. quite a swing that ended up working out for both of those guys. Um, I mean, we, we might as well keep, I know we're getting long in the tooth here, but should we just keep rolling on these? Yep. All right. So, I want to bring up one that is really weird, um, but let me be an evangelist for a second. So, <laughs> do you know Bongo Comics? The the Simpsons comics, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Matt Groening has his own comic book publisher, which is Bongo Comics, and like they just publish Simpsons titles. But one of the things that Bongo Comics has published over the years is Radioactive Man, Bart mm-hmm. Simpson's favorite comic book. These comics are fucking stellar. And one of the things that's so great about Radioactive Man is that when they publish, they don't publish issue number one, issue number two, issue number three. In their fictional Simpsons universe, Radioactive Man number one was published in 1952. And so when they publish Radioactive Man, they literally publish randomly numbered issues from any time between the present day and 1952. And oh. then they, they write the stories in the style of whatever was popular in the era that they're spoofing. Oh. So, dude, it's fucking amazing. And so originally, Bongo Comics published a six-issue Radioactive Man series back in the 90s when I was a kid. And I ate this shit up. Because it started with Radioactive Man number one, which was ostensibly from 1952. And it was a very down-the-middle Silver Age Superman spoof. Mm -hmm. They then move into Radioactive Man issue 88, which is Radioactive Man versus Magmo the Lava Man, which was very (laughs) much... Jack early Jack Kirby Marvel Mm -hmm. comics fighting monsters from the center of the earth. Then radioactive man Two Sixteen, the cover of which is a spoof of speedy green arrow sidekick shooting up heroin. (laughs) But on the cover of the radioactive man issue, it's just his sidekick fallout boy dressed as a hippie and radioactive man. (laughs) So confounded by, Oh my God, my sidekick fallout boy is a filthy hippie. Um, (laughs) Dude, this stuff is amazing. Damn, next- I, I need to fuck with that. I I would really love that because, you know, that stuff plays into all of our obsession with the aesthetics of comics over time. Anybody who actually likes comics, that's part of it. Dude, it is 
it is such, and, and this is the thing, having read all these, like the spoofs work. These are written by actual Simpsons writers who clearly are comic book people and who love this stuff. And it just cuts so hard. Not only do you get to see Radioactive Man being like this very lame, you know, 1950s Superman guy reacting very badly to all of these cultural changes that they put him through. But his supporting cast are all riffs on like Avengers and Justice League members. And mm. they go through all sorts of weird transitions that are all spoofs on what happened to all of those like second tier heroes through all these different phases of comics. Um, so like the one there's this one character who's a little bit of like a Batman um, daredevil, you know, non powered, but I'm going to get in your face and be kind of a surly guy. And like, Every single issue, his costume is like darker and his attitude is worse. And he goes from like, <laughs> he goes from like bleed. It was originally called like bleeding heart. And then he's dark heart. And then he's like blood heart. And it's like, <laughs> it's just amazing shit. Like uh, that. Dude, just around I, it, I have to sell yeah. this just a touch harder. The, mm. the last three issues, radioactive man, four twelve a spoof of the dark Phoenix saga where radioactive man goes dark <laughs> radioactive man, six seventy nine. a spoof of watchmen and uh, secret wars that is literally titled who washes the Watchmen's infinite secrets of legendary crossover night wars. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And then the, the final one is radioactive man 1000, which is a spoof of image on the cover of which radioactive man is wearing a cape so long that he's tripping on it and is in the classic spawn number one pose. Um, wow. And, and so that was what they originally did, but then they've since published a bunch of other issues that are all just weird, you know, Radioactive Man 136 is like a spoof of um, when comics would feature like the Beatles or Elvis or whatever meeting the hero. <laughs> like, it's great shit, man. I, I cannot recommend this stuff enough. Seek out Radioactive Man from Bongo Comics if you're a true comics fan. I love it so much. I, I think that's what people come to us for, Bill. It's a it's, it's obscurity. It's opinions. Uh, that's the thing. Me and uh, on the Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash the greatest pod, uh, me and Ron were having this conversation. And like, I think Ron's like um, niceness and my definitive language cut. Fuck that. Like, <laughs> right. But it heads hard on that episode, which you can check out if you go to our Patreon. Um it was because uh, we talked. We were talking about streaming shows and all this jazz, and it was just like this sort of everybody's a critic thing he was going through. You know, and I'm just like, first of all, don't fuck up the kayfabe of what we do because that we are technically cultural commentators and shit, and we discuss and debate what makes something great. But number two, I feel like if you're if you're trying to find out how something works. I think that's a different. There's a difference between that and going, dude. This uh, this Marvel product was not made for me, and it's for ladies. I'm going to be an asshole. There's a there's cottage industries of people being that, and that isn't criticism, nor is it tr trying to. Uh, as per our last episode on Superman analogs, we're not Clark, Kent, a young Clark Kent, using our laser vision and our and our X-ray vision to see if we can put back together a fucking uh, a beautiful caterpillar or whatever the fuck. We're we're not we're not a grasshopper. We're not doing that. We're we're doing that while other people have smashed a bug and are delighting in it. That's the difference between what we're trying to do as far as cultural commentators. So, yeah, that's no, what we I come mean, for. One hundred percent. I mean, I'm I'm here. To help you, dear listener, develop your taste. 
I mean, really, that's <laughs> honestly like what else? Are we, that's that's number one. But really, number two, the more selfish reason is like, I want to figure out how these things work so I can add to the canon of all these great things. Exactly. You know and I mean? finding out what what parts of the different things are additive. Like when we've noticed people adding something to the form, no matter how obscure or how me or how weird or whatever, I don't think anybody would peg me for a Grendel fan as as frou-frou and 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 frankly, uh intellectual as as a lot of uh Grendel stories are. I don't think people would pick me to be down with that. But like it's starting out as a street level concept and going to a global takeover thing is right in my wheelhouse that's yeah. i love that the effects of history on any sort of story i'm a sucker for all that so like these obscure heroes that we're we're gonna uh keep going through uh and some more obscure than others there's a value in seeing the superheroic paradigm through them so that you're not so stuck in the status quo of superhero stories because i think again when everything has to be set right at the end of a story there's something not real about that. The only thing I like that's like that is Star Trek. I think Star Trek is is more valuable if it's like that. But I think that mm. might be the only thing that I could think of in my head that is like, give me a good boys episode where somebody might get lasered in half that you that you really love. You know, yeah. even to a certain extent, give me that <sighs> Game of Thrones shit where anybody can die. You know, just <laughs> give me anything where anybody can die. I'm vastly more interested in it than to watch an IP survive forever. And if I am going to watch that, I would love it to be parodied the way that you said about Bongo doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said, like the the ripple effects of the character through history is such a through line that we've identified, at least in these last couple that we've talked about. I mean, mm -hmm. Hellboy, Grendel, and even Radioactive Man in its own way. Mm -hmm. um, and even in a weird way, Ash, which deals with you know a post-apocalyptic future. I think that there's really something to be said. Like, if you're going to create your own character, you have to understand their place, not only in their world, but in the history of their world. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's a commonality that we're finding in all these great non-mainstream superheroes. Absolutely. Uh, so what's what's uh, what's next on the list, brother? All right. There's a couple different ways we could go. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning pretty much all of the America's best comics um, by Alan Moore. This was originally a I want to say this was an image like imprint that they did just to give alan moore a bit of a playground it may have actually been dc it was it was been uh it was on it was in wildstorm wild uh, but, but it had its own like little tom strong section of wildstorm so like tom strong didn't have to fuck with the midnighter or no shit like that it was like right and like an homage imprint of wildstorm like but basically his his a beautiful ghetto for his characters to inhabit i will just say promethea I think is a wonderful series that does some things with its art. Number one by the absolutely unparalleled J.H. Williams, the mm. third, um, and even with its storytelling that you just have never seen before in comics. I mean, it is a singular experience. I don't know if it is entirely satisfying by the time you get to the end, but God damn, does it take you on a wild ride? So Promethea, very much worth your time. But I think oh, you I want to second that real yeah. quick. I want to second that real quick because Promethea, the thing that was dope about Promethea, in short, Promethea was again an idea. Promethea as the, the main Promethea that came back in Jesus' time and did whatever, mm. their essence, their story can be read and understood by people in the modern era or has been 
uh, read or or told by people like if your husband fell in love with Promethea and wanted Promethea to be real, you could conceivably become Promethea and get her powers. Or if you're a young girl chased by bullies, never ending story style, and you think about Promethea, you might become Promethea and beat them up. You know what I mean? There's Promethea is like an idea. Like if Wonder Woman could become you at any given time throughout history of different women and the, and the different Prometheus and a council of Ricks that you could commune with almost like, like a uh, Chadwick Boseman with Bast and them on the, on the, on the, on the belt. You know what I'm saying? There's like a Promethea council. There's different, uh, you can meet a lady who used to be Promethea until she stopped believing. And it's just, Oh, it's so fucking good. Yeah. God damn. It's, it very much sits in that place that Alan Moore and then later Grant Morrison loves to, to, play in which is that intersection between fiction and reality like Mm -hmm. how does our imagination how do our fictions inform our reality and vice versa Mm -hmm. um promethea might be the best version of all time of that in comics so it's, it's really interesting. It's it's Grant, it's Grant Morrison-esque. That's the best thing you could say about Alan Moore, right? <laughs> no, <Nah>, I'm just <laughs> joking. But or no, vice it's, versa. It's really I don't know. No, no. It's, it's very – yeah, I, I hope people get that. <laughs> I yeah. definitely hope people get that because Alan Moore is the, is the daddy of all that. But I think you were going to anticipate my love for Tom Strong. Oh, yeah. Um, Tom Strong is, is basically um, almost like a more refined – um version of doc savage yes you know like doc savage being born of like a specific process like in doc savage's case is like his parents were like fucking brother and sister and like evil or some shit but in tom strong's case he was raised in like a high gravity chamber so he'd be really strong and he was raised on this uh island of people who didn't age because they had these natural uh, Galoka root or some shit they were eating and he found a bride there uh, and the people there are ostensibly black so his whole his family is basically half black and he's this kind of uh if Tarzan wasn't an, an imperialist construct if he was more of a science hero and with the Doc Savage bend and he has his family and shit and the dopest issue of Tom Strong ever is issue number three just seek it out and read it and just it's got like a, a, a ancient Mayan god, a, a bunch of people from another dimension who worship a digital god mm-hmm. come to our world to annex it. And Tom Strong has to go through the dimensional thing or whatever and fight these guys. And it's just the best action comics you can have. Just, just Tom Strong talking about how he's visualizing pushing a purple triangle to mitigate the pain that he's feeling. You know, he has his, he's got memory palaces in his mind to take care of the different bodily functions that might go down as he goes through his adventures. And he said, fucking Tom Strong is ill as fucking that issue. That issue specifically is the distillation of the concept. Issue number three, he saves us from a techno organic Aztec society from the future. It's fucking amazing. Dude, Tom, Tom Strong, I remember that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was picking that up when it was originally being released. And again, it's a very almost facile premise of like, what if Tarzan and Doc Savage had a non-problematic baby? Mm. Like that's literally what Tom Strong is on yep. like ex- that explain a movie badly in one sentence level. Mm-hmm. But then number one, another commonality, um, a hundred years of in-universe history, like he was born at the turn of the century, and because of the age, you know, slowing or whatever, this was originally published around the year 2000, and he only appeared to be about 40 years old, 
and he and his family and their robot and their hyper intelligent talking gorilla that they hang out with <laughs> mm-hmm. have been having a hundred years of adventures. And again, they play that up to the hilt. Mm-hmm. But then number two, it's again just taking, all right, there's that, there's that one sentence premise. What's the craziest shit we can do with it? And like, let's not really have any rules. And it is just glorious. It is just like, mm-hmm. if you think that superheroes should be limited to like a guy who goes through a life-changing accident and gets strange powers because of it, go read Tom Strong for a totally different take on the paradigm that seems mm-hmm. to work even better. And 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 this this uh, comic book fans because of Spider Man because Spider Man is so so um, seminal have kind of taken to this like okay you're this regular guy and then you get powers well you have this responsibility now where it's like okay what if you were like born with powers and let's call it privilege mm-hmm. and you realize that it's your job to fucking help people. That's like a different story. It's, it's a responsibility that's like passed down, just like your goddamn money is, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's passed down to you, and 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 you, it's your your um you must. It is your responsibility, not because of some whim of fate, but by a design. And so when you realize that, then there's even more responsibility. It's like okay, you were built to be a hero. Now let's watch you be a hero. There's no, there's no excuse. You can't be like, well, I was just a six-year-old kid. That's why I dropped that bus on that old lady. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a baby. You can't do that shit when you were born and bred to be a superhero. You know what I mean? And that's I. And last things last, they have stories about his family and his mm. family's, you know, super super heroic shit. They're not quite as super as him, but his daughter kind of is because she has half him and half her mom, and her mom is kind of. Probably very much physically superior to a regular woman in America. Oh, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, so it was just like ah, the, his his it beca- it becomes a little it could. The dope thing about some of these ideas is they can be Fantastic Four one issue, uh, Loner Tarzan Adventure one issue, and so on and so forth. This is a key thing to making even big two superhero comics viable as continuous entertainment, putting them in different milieu is important. But when you control everything, you can do that with so much more verisimilitude. That makes sense. Uh, Completely. I should also note, you know, Tom Strong is another good uh, entry into your list of great aesthetic designs for characters that are instantly recognizable. Mm. That, that red short sleeve shirt with the inverted triangle on it. Like, I don't know what that has to do with, the name Tom strong, but like that's branding baby. That And, mm-hmm. and just the, I mean, he looks like Superman, but he's got the wisp of the gray hair. And then he constantly has those goggles up on his head. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just at a glance, boom, Tom strong and nobody, but Tom strong and his little gloves and his yeah. boots and stuff, his little pants. God, dang, he looks so cool. So yeah, you're right. That it's, I'm telling you. Oh, uh, so, so what's our list now? Iconography, mythology, yep. Uh, as in, you know, a story, whatever. Uh, and I would put separate from that impact on history, history in their sure. world, you know, history. It's a big, a big thing about making your, you know, non big two superhero actually hit, you know, or actually be. And then I think, uh, you know, a simple, a simple riff on a, on a well-known concept to pair with your crazy iconography and very specific, you know, history and world. I think that's mm. that's clearly a proven formula is when you take just a 
just a, like, like I keep saying a very facile sort of mix in, in Tom Strong's case, Doc Savage meets Tarzan, non-problematic in TMNT's case, uh, daredevil. But what happens after the accident that creates daredevil in, Mm -hmm. in Hellboy's case, uh, you know, Indiana Jones for all of the crazy world myths that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. But then, then you just keep building specificity and history on top of it. And you get something that is very singular unto itself. Well, I think I think the thing that another thing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did, and to a certain extent Hellboy do, is put the freaks to put mm. the freaks on the hero side. You know, for, uh, no matter what you think about the thing or whoever the fuck, nine times out of ten, your hero is white, cis heteronormative, and handsome or beautiful. Sure. sure, that's it. Period. And so having turtles and fucking weird monkey guys and just that shit is cool because they get to be heroes in that world. And, and obviously, you know, daredevil probably felt like a freak. You know, there's many different uh, iterations where he kind of rejects the fact that he's got all this power and all this hearing. and should just like, can I just get that away? Can I just go be normal, be a regular blind guy with regular hearing with regular stuff. And I won't have the responsibility that I heard this lady crying, 15 blocks away. You know, I, I, I just want to shoo all of that. He felt like a freak. His powers are freakish, but he himself wasn't freakish by the way. He Ray Charles is up all these hoes at his comics. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> He's oh, yeah. not a freak. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but the turtles are freaks and they can never truly be part of our society. And, you know, and there's stories where that doesn't matter at all. They're just kicking it on the couch with April or whatever, but there's stories where that matters a lot. And I love that malleability to to those type of freak, so-called freakish characters. Well, they want Hellboy to be a freak. Well, and Hellboy is beautiful because nobody thinks Hellboy's a freak. <laughs> nobody thinks Hellboy's a freak. It's fucking it's kind awesome. Of that, I mean, way. it's kind of that Savage Dragon thing too, right? Where yeah, it's like, yeah. I loved how you put it earlier. Once you get over your Ted level of weird celebrity for being a freak, then you're just a dude with a job. Yep, absolutely. Beautiful. All right. So I want to I wanna throw a monkey wrench into everything that we're talking about and talk about a superhero character that has appeared in comics, but wasn't originally created for comics, even though he was created by a comics creator. If you followed that, that word salad, (laughs) I'm talking about earthworm Jim. Oh shit. Earthworm Jim (laughs) created by Doug 10 Nepal. Who's just a, a, one of the all time great sort of alt comics illustrators. The has a, has an art style that's immediately identifiable Great creative mind, I think has been a little bit. Uh, uh, did he get me too, or, or something like that? <laughs> uh, I think I think he he did run a he ran afoul of of some shit. I don't I don't remember exactly what the controversy was, but I do. Yeah, it got it got pretty spicy around there. <laughs> but we yeah. as uh, I think it was uh, about gay people and like transgender people and shit ah, like that. I think it. I think you know that that. Uh, some of these motherfuckers do Theo Vaughn, who's like people call him problematic. I think he's one of the few white boys that says what's on his mind all the time. So I like I, whatever. Theo Vaughn. We used to yeah. just, quick aside, uh back in my TV development days, uh, we kept trying to develop a show for him because we liked him. He was originally gonna host a show for us um called Redneck Army, which was just a clip show of uh rednecks doing stupid shit, which mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how we didn't sell that. But anyway, he's <laughs> 
I like Theo Vaughn. He's a good dude. What? Why? Why? Why not that? Why? Why that? Uh, why does Duck Dynasty get picked up and that doesn't? I don't this know, dude. In just world. That's what I'm but saying. But yeah, Theo Vaughn. I saw him on stage yesterday because I, I did. I did my hosting set at the Improv. Then I went over this to the comedy store to hang out, and fucking, um, he he was on stage in the belly doing um this uh show. Uh, anyway, he's on stage and he goes, uh. Hey man, I don't I don't know if I'm racist, but I do know if I am, I ain't telling nobody. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was yeah. just like that's what that's what be getting motherfuckers caught up, man. You be oh, why are you gonna go outside and be racist, man? Well, who's these outside racists? And he was just doing it. It's like that's how I feel about a lot of these motherfuckers who got all these thoughts about transgender people, non-binary, blah blah. blah. Shut the fuck up yeah oh, that's all you gotta do inside your house you could be as oppressive or repressive or regressive or progressive or whatever you want however you want to think about it inside your house inside your family you can do whatever you want but when you decide that it's your i'm you know what i think if i say something these people will stop chopping dicks off and adding tits to guys and stuff if that's what you think is going to happen because you're a your earthworm gym opinion <laughs> comes up yeah. and I'm like, what the fuck so, so again i'm not i'm not trying to be an asshole but like whatever you believe just know believe this your opinion ain't gonna make it stop whatever the fuck it is your opinion ain't gonna make it stop so you might as well shut the fuck up and keep making that earthworm gym money well and see that's the thing like i don't want to talk too much more about doug ten because i am not trying to advocate for him i will just say this earthworm gym yeah the character is fucking great and like this was again this might just be a little bit of nostalgia bait for me but this was a character that was coming on the heels of the tmnt you know blowing up the entertainment world Mm -hmm. and was originally an indie i think an indie game company wanted to find a character that could cash in on the TMNT craze. And so they hired or they, they took pitches from comic book creators um, and Doug 10 Nepal was able to sell them earthworm Jim. And so earthworm Jim is a hyper intelligent earthworm in a robotic suit that allows him to travel Mm. to other planets and get into battles and adventures and shit. But he's really just an earthworm with a face and if that's yeah. not the most crazy comic shit you've ever heard of, I, I don't know what to tell you. But it again, is, the freaks win. The freaks yeah, win in, in these non-big two things. The freaks win. And it's not weird for the weirdo to be the main person. I think that's a, it's a it's a great through line in this list because – and also the, just the sci-fi properties of like a worm with a robot suit. Man, just the other day, you see uh, – you're not, you're not on Twitter – Thank God, uh, not 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 you know you being on Twitter. I'm thank God you're not you for know my, inundated for my by mental that. health. <laughs> yeah, all that fucking sludge out there. But there was just a goddamn um, uh, a goddamn video of a boa constrictor hmm. in a fucking exosuit walking around. Oh, I saw that shit. I I think I saw that on Instagram. Maybe yeah, walking around. It's like you ain't got enough trouble with these motherfuckers. You get come on, man. Like, but the thing is, if they all adopted those, they would be a lot easier to deal with because like, maybe they could, cause like they could do a lot of shit with their natural bodies. But if they had to clunk around in these stupid robot bodies, we might be able to keep track of them a little better. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> that's true. But so I, I think I went from no snakes with legs to all snakes have to have legs. <laughs> I'm a fucking snake fascist now. I'm a fucking tag them and bag them. Put these exosuits on them. The problem was when you give them opposable thumbs that can hold laser guns, and that's where <laughs> Earthworm Jim comes in. Because like that's that's where the problems really start. Yeah. No, I think I think there was just this great time, kind of in the mid '90s. Again, off the heels of like. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles becoming a household name, um, Image Comics sort of launching a whole new generation of creators and characters into the spotlight, and then sort of video games coming of age, you know, with things like the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis, where there were all kinds of people and, and platforms and entertainment just looking for weird superhero content. And at mm. that time, superhero content wasn't anywhere near as codified as it is today. You know, I feel mm. like now superhero content has its own flavor that like you just sort of absorb through osmosis by any exposure to pop culture. But back when this stuff was being creative, it was still the, being created. It was still the domain of weirdos and outcasts. And so yeah. that's why you get things like the crow, which we haven't talked about. That's why you get things like earthworm Jim Hellboy, you know, all to your point, the freaks winning because it's just like, let's take these really super specific visions, pair them with like really experimental art styles and see what the hell happens. And there were a lot of failures too, but the successes were just glorious. Dude, I love it. And I think that is a good transition to talk about the crow for a second. I think what's interesting about the crow is again, He's a superhero in that he has iconography from his from his uh, clown harlequin sort of makeup to his crow on his shoulder to his like leather uh, leather coat no no shirt <laughs> type <laughs> shit so you can see his bullet holes and his trauma you know what I mean that that's a beautiful thing and um but it's also like I said a freak more or less oh yeah working out his trauma you know what I mean and last things last it is uh the crow archetype it's about revenge which isn't super heroic because it's like for him he was like well if i had superpowers i would kill the person who took my my woman from me that's what i would use them for full stop so i don't give a fuck about your altruism or you're the last son of this or you're the scion of that i don't give a fuck about any of that i want to have the power to do bad to the people who did me bad that's what i want and there's all kind of myth- mythological reasonings and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, I think he wanted to explore that concept and he explored it in like a smattering of comics over time. There was like these long, consistent runs. There was like he he had stories he wanted to get out and this was his avatar. And I think that's another thing we can get out of superheroes that aren't in the big two is this ability to, to tell the stories when you fucking want to not have to have them cross over with 15 guys, not you know, to not have any issue three where Spider-Man shows up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it was very much just a singular creator's meditation on something that was very personal to him. And though the result is very, very different than something like Hellboy, I don't know if like the foundation is that different because like mm. we talked about with, you know, the whole, I am a fetish filmmaker translating into, I am a fetish comic book creator. Like, let me just find an avenue to explore all the things that I'm interested in, you know, with Mike Mignola and Hellboy, it's weird Eastern European myths and creatures. And with James O'Barr, it's grief and revenge. But, you know, 
in either case, it's still like a guy just putting his own fetish again, not used necessarily in a sexual way there on the page. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot to that. I mean, I think the same thing is true of Grendel with Matt Wagner. I think in a lot of ways, the same thing is even true. Like we talked about with Radioactive Man. It's very self-reflective about comic books. But I mean, to a, to a truly obsessive degree, like it's made mm-hmm. by people who clearly love the medium and are trying to spoof it for comedy. But again, it's coming from that fetishized place. Like this is the thing that we are just, we want to pick apart. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and, and and just, uh, you know, a thing about The Crow is like, not only was The Crow such a powerful concept that like, I think The Crow is maybe one of the only times I've seen somebody have a real meditation that just kept to themselves, get big and be, made it to a movie. I know everybody tells the tale of like, oh, well, just one day I was taking care of my daughter and I came up with Supergirl. Like, Shut the fuck up. Shut up. That didn't happen. There's a mm. lot of venal bullshit that went into making this character you think is so great. But I really think this was one of those times when it was just like, and I think TMNT is one of those times too. Mm. They weren't, there, there wasn't uh, super radioactive gerbils before them and then they jumped on some wagon. No. What if Daredevil was a bunch of fucking turtles, more or less? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and their yeah. and their master was 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 Splinter instead of Stick, and all this different jazz. Like there, there's pure places. So all I'm trying to get to is seeing that become a movie and seeing the movie become a super classic. I'm sorry, I don't care how old you are, how much nostalgia you have. I don't know that there's a classic Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Number one was good. I like the acting. Of mm-hmm. the people, the different shit was cool, but you could see certain things. But the crow, as flawed even as a movie as it is, it's still like a classic movie made up of a class. Like there's, it's got iconography because Bruce Lee's son was in it, uh, Brandon Lee, and he died and everything. But Alex Proyas put his foot off in that movie, man. He broke his foot off in that movie, and I watched that motherfucker. I watched it in the movie theater, but one day, I think a few years ago, I watched it at a fucking drive-in. Ooh. And the fucking movie is so dark that watching it at the drive-in, you know what I mean? It's yeah, like you're just, you're just seeing. Dark. I was just gonna say you're just seeing that the gray of the barely dark screen at that point because yeah, Dude, it was. It, but but for some reason, I mean, they they got it to where it was like it was kind of immersive. It was like Jesus Ooh. Christ, like what's. I don't even know what's going on, but people knew the movie so good that we could kind of like peer through the darkness and see yeah. the movie is like dark on dark. But like I. I don't know. It's one of the few things that I think uh, is like of its time. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That movie is the early nineties. The fucking soundtrack to it, the fucking, the oh, songs yeah. that the, you know, that you would listen to while you were reading that comic were most likely late eighties, early nineties songs. And maybe, maybe if you're of Obar's generation, some things from earlier, but you know what I mean? There's just something. I love things being of their time and that making them classic Rather than rather than that making them passe, does that make sense? Totally, no, totally, and I I agree with that. By the way, I think that that movie, I would say the movie holds up, but more than the movie holding up, like that you watch that movie, and if you want to know what a cultural moment looked like in 1994, <laughs> it's that fucking mm-hmm. movie. Like mm-hmm. it, without question, I remember. God, I remember one Halloween, you know convening at a friend's house and his his high school aged older brother walked in in a crow outfit made from like electrical tape but he had his face painted and he had his hair all done down like that and that motherfucker scared the shit out of me when i was a little kid 
Oh, and just last things last on the crow. I fucking one of I I think my screenwriting journey started a long, long time ago because I always uh, at some level I knew I wanted to write, and then writing movies just seemed like the best way. But when I was a little kid, I got to be a screenwriting nerd, so I would go to comic book conventions. The first screenplay I first screenplay I ever bought was Pulp Fiction, and I mm-hmm. bought that at a store. But then somebody told me either at the store or I was at the comic book convention and I was this was displayed to me that you could at that time buy movie scripts. There wasn't any internet. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. That you could buy movie scripts uh at the comic book convention and they would be in bins like comics. And I dug through a bin and fucking like Indiana Jones three or something was in there. And right under it with this red cover was the Crow screenplay by David Shaw, the David Shaw like solo draft, I think. And I bought that motherfucker so lickety split and I went to go look at it. And obviously it was like a little bit different from the movie and different stuff like that. But that like fascinated me even more. Like, oh, why did they choose to do that? Oh, now I see this would be kind of hard to and just it just blew up my mind. And if I didn't have such relentless ADHD and dilettantism, I think I'd be a big screenwriter by now. <laughs> but because I, I, I feel like it blew my brain as to like seeing somebody actually write a screenplay who didn't get to direct it and how different that was from the, my screenplay of Pulp Fiction, which was like almost line for line what the movie is. Right. It blew my mind. I, I learned about development at like 15, <laughs> like, like develop, the development process at like 15. So that's why I say I should be bigger, you know what I'm saying? Because I knew yeah. about shit like that when most kids don't even know that people write movies. But anyway, I think it's – But I mean even just hearing you talk about that just puts me back in that headspace of those – pre-internet or i guess early internet days before Mm -hmm. literally anything and everything was at your fingertips like Mm -hmm. i think wrapped up in all this especially these characters that really were born in like the late 80s early 90s i remember just that feeling of discovery going into comic book stores or wherever you might be and finding these weird off the beaten path freak as hero type of characters mm-hmm. and feeling that little bit you know it felt a little bit dangerous it felt a little bit overwhelming because it's like again it's like you never knew if you were going to be able to get issue one and get the whole story and you yeah, know just imagine if you got addicted to the fox oh dude how are you gonna fucking find more of the fox books yeah <laughs> it's too hard all right, so uh, uh, continuing with the trend of problematic creators, this might be our last one to talk about, but very much this fits into that exact milieu I was just painting of like being a little kid in like these weird alt waters, you know, at a time when you didn't have access to everything at your fingertips. I hate him now and he sucks, but Ethan Van Skyver's Cyber Frog. Nah. That he- that this dude published with Hall of Heroes, which was like a fly-by-night publisher based out of Indiana and being a Chicago kid that felt very attainable, Mm -hmm. um, where you could literally just like cold send them a submission and they would publish anthologies, you know, with a bunch of very amateur-level stuff in it. Like Ethan Van Skyver's Cyberfrog was the breakout character from Hall of Heroes. And it was very much, you know, just another one of these riffs on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm. But goddamn, that art in the mid 90s. And I will almost say that dude degenerated as an artist. Like, I would, oh, nothing yeah. that he ever did for DC was as interesting as that Cyberfrog stuff. It was so 
weird and grotesque and like had the ticky tackiness of Todd McFarlane with some of the weird expressiveness of like a Doug Ten Nepal or um, whoever the guy that did Johnny the Homicidal Man, Yonan Vasquez, mm-hmm. who did Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, where it was like the really extreme cartooning. Like mm-hmm. Ethan Van Skyver put all that shit together in Cyberfrog and then made it ultra violent. And God damn, did that light me on fire as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I mean, and it's, I think it's interesting that, um, I think it's interesting that we come upon this one because I think the only things that keep and, and his problematic garbage aside and, and, and mega stuff, whatever, uh, and do you knock yourself out with that shit. Mm. But the reason why it's not as dope as any of the characters that we listen on this list is number one, it doesn't fucking come out. Even when you fucking back a Kickstarter from this fucker, he never puts it out. He just, what, you buying more webcams to talk to hate women on or whatever? You know, like, how, where's the money going, Ethan? Nobody's suing you like Alex Jones and the rest of the scumbags. So I, what, uh, where's the money going? Yeah, I, I have no comment on any of these modern forays into Cyberfrog because I have not fucked with that at all. But, no, yes. but, but yeah, but but they're coasting, and I think what I'm saying, just like the that initial burst of super creativity, and just I think you know what, I, there's a thing, and I, I'm breaking kayfabe a little bit, but like when black people talk about uh, white people, mm-hmm. and 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 a lot of uh, you know white people have talked about how like white people age, because I guess the sun isn't for y'all and shit like that, so like the age shit can can hit white people pretty hard. But I just we we find that it hits problematic people really hard. Mm. That's what that's what we as a culture and a community have found that it hits problematic people really hard. And I just I'm looking forward to like the next couple of years of Ethan Fetchgiver's hair falling out and his his fucking teeth falling out like goddamn that dude that drank for the wrong cup and in Indiana Jones. You know what I'm saying? Like 100%. I'm just <laughs> looking forward to that happening to him because you're right. It happened with his art. His art has gotten worse. The worst that he's gotten, and it's and I'm not that dude who hates the fucking uh, dude. I'm sorry let me go to hell but there are certain comedians who have been deposed right now when you if you put on their best special i'm gonna laugh at that shit because you can their art was great yeah and i and i'm not and a lot of times you know you can't separate the art from the artist because once they get canceled they can't do any more art so all you're left with is this awesome shit they made but unfortunately this fucker has been able to keep going after being shitty and being known as shitty and that keeping going it's like I always had this theory that like big pun would have fell off. This is really hip hop talk, but like big pun was this magnificent rapper and he died very young, mm-hmm. but he was on his way to falling off in my personal opinion. <laughs> and I think we got spared that, but with Ethan, woo, he going to ride this to the rails come off, and we're going to see how bad he can get. I, he's going to get late stage Frank Miller bad at drawing at some point, And we're going to be there for it. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I, that's that's the only reason why I'm glad that uh, you got mentioned on here. But also, as a kid, I thought that Cyberfog was so fucking sick, bro. Oh, dude! Then he have like a visor or something, or his eyes are red. He, his eyes got, are like he's got those giant. Red. Nobody, yeah, he's got these giant eyes that like extend on either side of his head. But then he's got like the super expressive comic book eyebrows that like just distort the the shape of yeah. the eyes. And his mouth too is like he's he's essentially like a Looney Tune style cartoon character, but then like all teched out with fucking cybernetic uh, arms and legs and like ripping dudes heads off and shit. I mean it again on a very just base 13 year old level, 
like that shit rocks right and it still rocks which is why he was able to build people out of their money for that bullshit because yeah. like god damn man i don't know i don't know if, i don't know if he could be our headliner for this conversation though there's no one else on the list oh we can i mean i can i can 100 just keep going and just wash <laughs> no, that taste no, out of our mouth for sure oh yeah well let's 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 get a little uh ethan out of, get, get a little ethan and i bet it is little oh, oh. out of our out of our mouth because how could you it, dude, I'm sorry, dude. How could you hate women that much and have a ah, big schlong? That's all I'm saying. One hundred percent. The most problematic guy. Anyway, so uh, there's two others that I think are worth mentioning, and uh, the first one we've talked about before on the podcast, I think. Uh, but the tick. Oh, you know what? The tick is a is a the tick is a hole in my shit because I was that type of dude who would like whenever a superhero was making fun of superheroes. While also being kind of one. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I found that distasteful on some level because I knew that I would have to be more mature than I was to enjoy that. <laughs> or I would have to like admit that what I was digging on wasn't that mature or something. Yeah, it just felt like an attack. Like a lot of parody comics felt like an attack on me at a certain age of reading comics. So I never really got into the tick. I will say I do think that the tick is is fairly mean spirited. <laughs> I mean, and that's. <laughs> but I still like I still like Deflator Mouse though. When he oh, had dude, his cartoon, Def- I was Deflator fucking Mouse. with Deflator Mouse. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, and that's the thing though. Like the tick is kind of mean spirited, but also awesome. And like if you've seen um, that animated series from the early nineties, that mm. essentially is the comic book. Mm. And like to me that animated series was the shit. And I saw that Mm. first and then went on to read the comics. And like, there is some, like there's more sexual humor in the comics, obviously than there's going to be on like a Fox kids Saturday morning cartoon. Um, And the comics actually tend to be a little bit slower than the TV show, which was very just gonzo in your face. Um, But the overall flavor and certainly the art style was very much a one-to-one translation from the comics to the TV show. Yeah, I, um, I heard that, and that's why I wasn't encouraged to kind of go back to the comics. But now that I'm thinking about it, as much as I've always wanted to make comics, that guy, uh, what Ben Edlund, is ben that Edlund. his name? Yeah, that's like that's like the dream. That oh, guy dude. lived my fucking whole dream. I have to, yeah, we have to go over this a little bit because yeah. in a lot of ways, the Tick is every bit the story of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it just wasn't the overnight success of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But like, so The Tick was published by New England Comics. You might know New England Comics as a series of comic stores in New England because that's what they were. (laughs) Ben Edlund was a regular customer who made his own comics starring The Tick And the guy who owned New England Comics liked it so much that he agreed to print it and sell it at his stores. And so that was how the tick got started as essentially (laughs) this fan spoof that was sold only at these comic stores because those comic stores were printing the book. And so that eventually gets sold into an animated series. And over the years... Ben Edlin now is writing television outside of just the tick, but like he was an executive producer and writer on the newest version of the tick, which was the second live action series that they did this time for Amazon prime mm-hmm. after a very well-received live action version on Fox that followed up the animated series. 
that animated series ran for like three seasons. The, the live action series on Fox, I think, ran for at least two seasons. Wasn't and that then Patrick Warburton? Patrick Warburton. And actually um, a young Nestor Carbonell, uh, mm. who you'll probably know as the mayor in the Dark Knight movies, but has been in a ton of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Playing their version of Deflator Mouse, who I think was called something different. Batman Well, that's what it was, because he was specifically <laughs> Hispanic. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, and so The Tick now has had three television adaptations that have all ran for multiple seasons. Um, very much a household name. Had a Sega game back in the day that I was addicted to. It was a great <laughs> game. Um, and yeah, has been alive in comics since... I, I, what, I think the first Tick comic was published in like 1989 or 1990. Yeah, it's, it was back then, yeah. Yeah, and so... Ben Edlin goes from just a dude who was drawing spoof comics that his local comic uh, comic store guy, <laughs> comic book guy liked to now is like, like I said, he, he may have even been the showrunner on that Amazon Prime tick series. Dude. So quite the trajectory. <laughs> Fucking amazing shit, man. So yeah, the, the, tick, the tick gets a bunch of props. And uh, I watched the first episode. You know what? I watched the first episode or two of every tick thing that comes out. Yeah. So you know what? If if I wish the fuck I had a product that the America knew about that they would give me that shot on, <laughs> I would have so much money right now. Listen, the uh, the tick on Amazon Prime um, worth worth sticking with. I I liked I liked it. It wasn't the greatest superhero thing you'll ever see, but it was very likable. And that original animated series, I think I've seen every episode of that. It is amazing. the The greatest episode is probably i think it's either episode six or seven of the first season which is the evil midnight bomber what bombs at midnight and <laughs> and the tick versus the tick when the tick ends up at like a biker bar on the outskirts of town populated by supervillains, and then another hero named the tick who's like an intense psychopath also shows up and they end up having a big battle Meanwhile, the evil midnight bomber, what bombs at midnight, who is a supervillain bomber, is setting up bombs all throughout the bar while the fight is going on. It's, <laughs> it is beautiful, beautiful stuff. But anyway, the tick is great. It's it's a if you read the comics, you get even more of this. But it's again just sort of if you're not into it, you're not into it. But it is just. I am going to spoof superheroes while also indulging in all the crazy bullshit that superheroes are good for. Mm. And, you know, there's a place for that. I like it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know what? There was uh, the only people on my list that I wanted to talk about that weren't like that. Mm. Really, I, I think over the course of our conversation, I have found out why. They are, I mean, they're not lesser than fucking Cyberfog, but they're certainly lesser. <laughs> they're certainly lesser than people like uh, Hellboy. Uh, it, it is funny how many characters, like, we, we talked briefly about uh, Midnighter and um, Apollo um, in our Superman analog episode. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I really think that I would have loved to see them as an in a real indie book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think we could have seen a lot more out of that if it was absolutely in. I agree with that. I think, I think there was so much happening in Wildstorm in the late nineties 
because that was when uh, Warren Ellis kind of came in and was turning it for the first time into like a compelling and self-consistent universe. But that was also the same time it was being sold to DC. They were establishing these imprints like America's Best Comics for Alan Moore. I think Joe's Comics for J. Michael Straczynski may have also been run through Wildstorm. Um, even Ellis was sort of splitting his time between doing Stormwatch and then The Authority and then also doing Planetary, which was establishing totally an entire separate continuity for Wildstorm. And so between all those shenanigans, like it became such a hodgepodge. But I agree with you that in a more streamlined universe, like just those Stormwatch characters that Ellis really made his mark with could have been something special. Oh, yeah. And you know what? The only one on my list uh, that actually I didn't think of before that I actually do want to talk about a little bit. There's there's two, but I don't really want to talk about one of them because uh, anyway, Madman. Oh, Madman yeah, by fucking Mike Allred. Yes. There's something so fucking sick to that. The way the way Homeboy draws, the how expressive it is, and yet his people have like I don't know, these kind of empty eyes. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I there's there's just something fantastic about Madman and his design and how malleable that concept was and him owning it and him being able to kind of parlay that style into being like his own corner of the Marvel Universe's house style. You know, as he was drawing like Silver Surfer and 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 Fantastic Four and all that shit. So like that's kind of my contribution about Madman. I just want to give Mike Allred a lot of props for coming up with iconic design. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about the actual history of his characters because it seemed like they almost rebooted when he would go to different series and shit. But even I love that too because it's like fuck it, it's my guy. I don't need to have him be a spaceman if he doesn't want to be this episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. I don't know. It was like, like this weird, and he was like this weird, almost reanimated Frankenstein or something that came. It, there, so much shit about Madman was very fucking interesting. And even though it's as of its time as something like The Crow, I just don't think it's like re- among amongst comics fans, it might be revered, but I don't think the average Joe knows about Madman like they know about The Crow. And mm-hmm. that might be some kind of crime somewhere. I mean, like I said, maybe the stories don't hold up, but like he was just really interesting. And Mount Albert is an interesting creator. I think we should talk more about later, but he, I just want to give him some props. Yeah. I mean, this entire conversation kind of makes me think we should, we should have maybe another episode's conversation about like non-mainstream influential artists, because I will yeah. second, like there's something about Allred's art that is like, so cartoony but not and like so slick but also nudely and like i don't it's it it is like a whole world unto itself and he's actually influenced a lot of modern artists because he was one of the first guys who really let a lot of coloring do the heavy lifting with his art which is not to say that he's not a great artist but it's like his books from the beginning, and I think because he often works with his wife as a colorist, so they work mm-hmm. very closely, his work from the beginning was very much designed to be about like these day glow colors and and the color doing a lot of like the eye candy work on the page. And so he works with these very um choice holding lines and he fe- you know he feathers the ends of his lines and he, he changes up his line weights. But it's mm-hmm. really about just creating these nice shapes for the colors to occupy. It's uh, it's great art. I don't know enough about Mad. I don't know that I've ever read a full Madman comic. Um, 
So I can't do a ton of talking about it, but like I do love the art and he 100% fits your criteria of like a memorable visual. Oh yeah, fuck yeah. Uh but the last guy I got I got I want us to talk about is I I I know this is probably a blind spot for you because it feels like just the kind of guy where you might not be into him, but like Nexus. Oh, Nexus. no, I, I could talk about some Nexus. Yeah, Nexus as a fucking I mean I almost Oh, he's almost to where I want to do an episode on him. He's almost there. Maybe we'll do a whole Patreon episode at some other time about about all the intricacies and shit. But just the overview of Nexus is fucking amazing. First of all, he's got an iconic look with his fucking uh, ball sack shorts and his little skivvies <laughs> and shit. Kind of like Solar Man in the Atom yep. meets, you know, the sort of Alex Raymondy, you know, high thigh boots type of heroes whoever the fuck you know draws like well, that he's got, yeah i mean he's got he's got that slick visor it's like that the visor with the half face mask so it's almost like the midnighter's mask but with the slick like sh- like sunglasses visor across it mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you know with the lightning bolt that goes across his torso so drawn, sick <laughs> drawn by yeah 100 but drawn by steve rude who yes. kind of fits into that mike Allred model of like it sort of looks like Silver Age art, but it definitely isn't. And it's kind of its own thing. Um, Steve Root, another great indie comics artist. Uh, dude, I mean, I really think at some point we do a fucking um, uh, uh, a- at least a Steve. We'll do, we'll do an artist series. Mike Allred, Steve Root, people like that, that like uh, Alex Toth, people that are like super fucking ill, but they don't get all of this like well maybe the kayfabe's guys got it covered with alex toth and alex toth also has his own podcast looking into alex toth or some shit like that search for it on the internet it's it should come up in your recommendeds around our podcast because this guy just oh toth in depth i think it's called this guy just talks about toth all day but anyway my thing about nexus is just okay it meets all these criteria. Number one, it's got an intense history about it. The, mm-hmm. the the Merc, I guess they're like godlike aliens that more or less have conferred this power upon Horatio Hellpop. Mm-hmm. And his, his his dad was uh, whatever the fuck else, Hellpop, who was like a communist dictator of his world who got deposed and was just like, well, fuck it then. I'll take my ball and going home. So he takes his wife. And and he, I guess she doesn't know she's pregnant or he makes her pregnant while they're in space. And so they arrive at this like abandoned space monolith situation and they they land there and it seems to be habitable have air and shit and they start living there but weird shit starts happening like you know his 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 kid uh his kid starts seeing um imaginary beings which are not imaginary at all that Mm -hmm. populate the place and his wife wanders off and dies because the place was too the place is too huge and she just wandered off and died of fucking uh starvation somewhere in this giant place and just all this weird shit. But anyway, the last thing that happens is the kid starts having tremendous headaches and he realizes that if he gets dumped into this fluid in the on the planet. His headaches, are, uh, about, you know, go away, but he needs to chill out in there a whole bunch and then he'll get a vision of somebody doing something bad. And he gets this infusion of power and he's compelled to go kill that person because if he doesn't kill that person. The headache shit will kill him or something. It was something like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So the bottom line is he is a guy with immense cosmic power, to, like fly through space, shoot motherfuckers with ray beams. I don't know if he even uses superhuman strength because he's just such an energy guy. Yeah. But the bottom line is Nexus is like he murders dictators and shit. And his first murder was his own father. 
because the, the, the people who gave him his powers made him see that his father's crimes were the cause of his present distress. So he had to kill his dad as his first like mission. Mm. And just from then, it just gets weirder and weirder. Uh, and, and again, it's one of these other concepts where the authors can make the story anything they want. The, uh, one of the great ones that they did was God Con. It was a convention of God. So like Jesus and Buddha and everybody come to the convention and get their badges and walk around. And it's like, what the fuck? And like a murder happened at God Con and Nexus had to solve it. So it was like, it was like a fucking Henry Perot murder mystery with gods. Yeah. On a weird planet. You know what I mean? Like it could be whatever you want it to be when you're empty, baby. I think that's one of the the distinguishing characteristics of Nexus is like it starts with this very sort of dark premise of like he's sort of yeah, he's he's empowered by suffering and he's drafted against his will into this mission of vengeance where like these aliens are sending him out to like kill mass murderers throughout the galaxy. So he's trying to like dismantle oppressive empires and shit. And then it evolves into what you just said, where it's like they can really make it anything they want. And on that level of like it also being a riff on things that the creators love, um, at least visually very much just in the tradition of Hanna-Barbera superhero characters so like Space Ghost and Herculoids and, and mm-hmm. Johnny Quest and all those kind of characters. Like mm-hmm. Nexus, all the trappings of Nexus, the way he looks, his hideout, like the way the, the supporting characters are designed. Everything could very much be like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the 70s. And, and that's why we talked about Toth a, a minute ago, because Toth did the designs for all that shit. Yeah. So and- like he's heavily influenced by Toth and also Jack Kirby. But I'm not going to be an asshole about this. But it's like if somebody who could really fucking draw was influenced by Kirby, yeah. somebody who could really fucking draw being a, an influenced by the minimalism of Toth. You know what I'm saying? Like he when he decides to go beyond those two people's abilities. And I think there are certain times in which he does. It is always because he's trying to add to the things he's learned from them. And that's what's so fresh about the dude. I also love the fact that Nexus was created in 81 um, or 80. I think it was first published in 81, but you know, these guys are created in mm-hmm. 1980 mm-hmm. and Steve Rude is literally kickstarting a new graphic novel about Nexus right now. Like it's intermittent, but it is, it has been published for the past 40 years continuously. And mm-hmm. um, again, just a great, you know, great example of indie creators just growing and committing to growing with and committing to their book. It, it, Another interesting side note, though. Um, so Mike Barron, who was the writer who originally created Nexus, um, I believe went full MAGA. And him, yep. and, him and Steve Rude have since had a falling out. And Steve Rude is now doing Nexus solo. And so that's kind of an interesting. We've seen that a couple times now between Doug Tendapal, Ethan Van Skyver, and now Mike Barron. These kind of indie comics pioneers. Um trending right wing that's kind of an interesting thing yeah well i mean and i think we um we talked about it on our on our um overton window uh episode our comics uh our comics the most um our comics our comics the greatest conservative art form yeah and i think people got confused again by that title but it was like okay of the things that conservatives like a lot most of them suck line dancing fucking a lot of trash in there 
comic books are also in there because, you know, the non-sanctioned vigilante sets right what's right using his might. That's a right-wing idea if I ever heard one. Yep. So I, it, it just it's funny. Like, oh, Chuck Dixon's right wing. You don't fucking say, you know, <laughs> Frank Miller's a little right wing. You don't say you yeah. don't say it's just it, it gets it gets a little ridiculous. Like, I'd love to see Stanley's voting record all the way down. <laughs> I'm sure there's a couple of Republicans that took care of that Marvel money. That's all I'm oh, saying. I mean, not not Stan- by any means all. But you know what I'm saying? Um, uh, Stanley definitely voted for Nixon, at least in at least in 80, <laughs> if not in 84. Or in, uh, I, I mean, Reagan. Reagan. <laughs> Reagan. Damn it. I meant right, Reagan right, from the beginning. Right, I said right, Nixon. Right, go, go right. Just do, all do right. It. All right. I'll do it. Oh, Stan Lee definitely voted for Reagan. If not in 1984, <laughs> in 1980, Stan Lee voted Reagan all the way. <laughs> Excelsior. I love him. <laughs> but but yeah, so like I think I think just looking at this list um that we talked about from Nexus to Hellboy to Ash to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to the Tick. Uh, and who else did we talk about? Earthworm Jim, Radioactive Man. Um, Grendel, if you didn't say Grendel, yeah. uh, Tom Strong, Promethea. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that covers cyber frog, you know, yeah, a, a little bit of bad man, uh, yeah. uh, mad man, the crow uh, and the crow. Yes. Uh, these people, these characters, when you really look at them and we talked about, you know, people like Savage Dragon and stuff, but now you kind of understand what we're talking about as far as like why we wanted to talk about non big two comic book um superheroes because as we stated earlier they get farther and farther away from hum- from heroism but i think some of them get closer and closer to humanity mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i think it's interesting how plastic the actual comic book world must be to function you know what i mean like there, there's parts you start getting a little cognitive dissonance you get about 30 you start reading comic books you're like why doesn't um spider-man stop slavers and like child <laughs> porn stuff you know what i mean like why because th- no shut up that that part of the world doesn't even exist for spider-man it's well, like I, it's like when you pull off barbie's draws you know what i'm saying there ain't supposed to be nothing <laughs> there's there. nothing there there's not no. supposed to be nothing there 100 i mean i think if anything you look at the totality of this list and these various rules that we've sort of been breaking down and you it kind of lays bare how rigid and and formulaic mainstream superheroes are and mm-hmm. to a certain extent i think have to be for reasons yes. that we talked about before yes but i think the biggest takeaway then is how much if you're gonna do your own thing you can't do it like marvel and dc do it and expect to be successful they've right. got a monopoly on those particular types of stories and characters and you see very clearly here the ones that can break out and stand the test of time outside of that big machine just do it different. Absolutely. So now that we've uh, given you some of the characters that we like the best, hit us up in the fucking comments and t- tell us about all of the type of guys that that we may have missed or didn't make our list because, you know, we're cooler than you or whatever the fuck you want to think. <laughs> you know, like like if, if you it, maybe we're being elitist because we didn't include, you know, uh, uh, burnt toast man or whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like t- tell us some of our, our blind spots and we'll certainly um, have the ability to check that out. Also, I would like to take this opportunity to uh, read the latest of our awesome reviews of the show. So direct hot from Apple Podcasts, a five-star review. 
Oh, yes, it is definitely a five-star review. Matter of fact, the title of the review is Five Star Show. Uh, and uh, it's by uh, Radtober. And they say, came to hear them from one of their previous podcasts, Nerd Goat, that featured a great guest each episode. Love this new premise for them to explore. Also, this is a show that you will want to become a Patreon member. The content included in their extra episodes really rivals their main show. Thank you, Ed, Ron, and Bill, for all of your hard work. Thank you, Radtober, for that dope-ass review. And you're welcome. Yeah. And, dude, how do you like those apples, Bill? They fucking – they mentioned Nerd Goat, which is now back in the family because I think legally we we we, 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 we did our thing. So, like, we're, you're going to get uh, Nerd Goat Classic episodes on the YouTube channel if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, which many, 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 many of you are not. Fucking subscribe to it. Ron's working as hard as he can to put up old Nerd Goat episodes on there so you can get some of that flavor and the new Greatest Pod episodes. He's working his little tail off trying to get those prepared and processed for you. So please join our YouTube channel. Please follow us on Twitter at Nerd Goat Podcast. That is that is an all, a catch-all Twitter for uh, the old Nerd Goat Podcast and obviously the greatest because we are the Nerd Goat Podcast. And uh, please follow us on um, Instagram at The Greatest Pod. All that type of shit really helps. And then, of course, you can follow at Ed Greer Destroys on Instagram, especially. I'm at C Bill Draw on Instagram. You can see our artwork as well as promos for the show, obviously. And then uh, we miss him today, but at Dorky Swallow on Instagram, at Ron Swallow on uh, ye old Twitter. Follow us on all social media. It's super important that we uh, get some engagement and jazz. And please do check us out on Patreon as we uh, expand. So thank you for indulging us in this deep dive of non-DC, non-Marvel superheroes. And I will let Bill take us on out with his greatest rendition of our outro. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Greatest Pod.